to another episode of Theoretically Speaking. I'm Hannah Fowler, and next to me, as always, is Isabel Gonzalez. And we hope you are all excited for an episode on a very popular topic, space. And in particular, we will be talking about astrochemistry. In just the last few months, we have had a lot of excitement in the field of astronomy. I'm sure all of our listeners remember the first ever black hole image, which was made possible thanks to a computational algorithm developed by Dr. Katie Bauman and her team. This constituted a phenomenal achievement, a direct observation of a black hole and its physical appearance just about a century after the first indications of their existence theoretically and around 50 years after the term black hole was first coined with its first detections on 1971. As well as this, in January, NASA successfully produced images of the most distant explored object in the Kuiper Belt using their probe New Horizons. This was done a staggering 4 billion miles from Earth, and for some context that's equivalent to walking along the equator over 160,000 times. And as if all of that wasn't enough, in April scientists detected helium hydra for the first time. This was the first molecule ever made in the universe and will have been created quite soon after the Big Bang. Well, by quite soon we mean around 100,000 years after, but considering the universe itself is nearly 14 billion years old, 100,000 years really isn't a very long time. With all of these recent developments in the field and its inherent popularity as a topic in films, books, other medias and with the general public, it felt only fitting that we asked an astrochemist to discuss space chemistry with us further. So we travelled to the University of Sheffield to speak with Professor Anthony Meyer, who gave us an introduction to the topic and answered all of our questions about space chemistry. Hi Anthony, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Well, my name is Anthony Meyer. I'm a, a theoretical chemist from uh, the University of Sheffield. I'm Dutch. I was, uh, did my PhD in Nijmegen within the group of uh, Van der Aavoort. And after a, a bit of a tour through the US at Wayne State University with Professor Goldfield and at UCL with Professor David Clary, I became a lecturer in Sheffield in 2003. I'm now a professor of theoretical chemistry. So my group studies uh, reactions, fundamental reactions with quantum chemical and quantum dynamical methods. Uh, so the reactions, as I say, tend to be quite fundamental. They tend to be reactions in the interstellar medium, but also things like hydrogen tunneling in, in gas phase reactions, uh, and for instance also uh, electron transfer in, in liquid phase reactions. Right, so it is our understanding that the study of these fundamental reactions is especially directed towards the analysis of astrochemistry. So we were wondering, how is experimental data obtained in this area? Right, okay, so experimental data is, is, is two ways you can obs- obtain experimental data. On the one hand, there's lab-based data, so people are measuring stuff here on Earth, and then it depends on what the environment is in which you measure these things. It can be in the gas phase, in which case you use standard chemical physics techniques like cross-molecular beams or high-resolution spectroscopy to do things. Of particular interest in this area is the uh, a big machine they have down in, uh, in Rennes. It's called Kinetique de Réaction en Enculement Supersonique Uniforme, or uh, Reaction Kinetics in a Uniform Supersonic Flow, where you can measure reaction rates at very, very low temperatures. Uh, and a second version of that machine is now these days at Leeds because the way they use it for atmospheric research, for example. If you look at reactions that are happening in the solid state, you use standard surface science techniques, things like uh, RARES, which is an infrared technique, or temperature program desorption, TPD. But of course, this is astrochemistry, we're talking about space, so one particular good way of, uh, of getting experimental data is using astronomy. And that can be Earth-based astronomy, big telescopes, 
It can be uh, satellites uh, or, or orbit-based observatories like Hubble or the James Webb Space Telescope, or it can be uh, missions, satellites that go out and, and observe things, things like Rosetta, uh, the Cassini-Huygens mission, or of course the New Horizons mission that uh, recently visited uh, Ultima Thule. So when we think of space, I think the first things to come to mind are probably stars, planets and other celestial bodies. There's also a large amount of matter found in between, and it's described in one of the reviews that we're going to talk about in a bit as dense and cool neutral interstellar and circumstellar tiny dust matter in our galaxy and others. What kind of molecules exist here and what sort of chemistry occurs? Right, so before I answer the question, let me sort of give you a bit of boundary conditions on, on the kind of chemistry that occurs. So one thing that you need to realise is that the densities of matter, any matter in space, is very, very low. In these sort of regions where we're talking about, it's on the order of about 10 to the 4 molecules or atoms per cubic centimetre, so that's really, really tenuous. The temperatures tend to be very, very low, 10 Kelvin, 100 Kelvin, depending on where you, where you are in, in an object like this. So, as a consequence, three-body reactions won't happen. As a consequence, anything endothermic or with a barrier won't happen either. The other thing that you need to, and we'll come a little bit about that, probably talk about a little bit later, is that the elemental abundances are very different from what you would find in, in a general lab. You can't just, you know, there is no platinum to do platinum cross-coupling reactions. I've no idea what that is, but you know, my colleagues say it's something that, is, that they use all the time. So, the reactions in that case are, are, are limited. The final thing that you need to take into account, you're not talking just about formation, about destruction as well. So these areas where you find these molecules tend to be very much shielded from the, uh, from the outside environment. I mean, we're quite lucky that we live here on a planet with a nice atmosphere, with an ozone layer, so a lot of harsh radiation, a lot of fast-moving particles actually don't reach us, and therefore we can exist. Those regions are not as inhospitable as the outside the interstellar medium, but they're still quite harsh. You need to look at destruction as well as formation. So in these regions, a lot of the really harsh radiation is there, so molecules can survive. And you can get molecules like H2, helium H+, carbon monoxide, water, but uh, water can, ha can be in those regions, but also on the surfaces of a star, for example. And also bigger things like benzene or uh, buckyballs or, for example, polyenes that wouldn't exist here because they would be way too reactive. Things like HC9N, which are essentially alternating single and triple, triple bonds. So which techniques are used to determine the composition of space matter? Right, okay, so the obvious way to, to do that is using astronomy. Uh, and so it's either using, uh, as I said, uh, using telescopes, and they tend to be in rather unusual places this, because of light pollution. So here in Sheffield, there is a large telescope just across the road from where we are at the moment. But it's just used for students just to practice things because there's way too much light, so you can't actually observe anything. So uh, of particular importance for the kind of stuff that we're talking about are things like ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array down in, in Chile, in northern Chile. Uh, the same place you also find the very large telescope, the VLT, which is scheduled to re be replaced by the XLT, the extremely large <laughs> telescope. Of course, there is uh, Hubble, famous, uh, lots and lots of really nice pictures, uh, and the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope, which was supposed to have been launched by now, but has been postponed and postponed and postponed, mm -hmm. scheduled to be launched in 2021. The reason why it's been postponed is actually is where it ends up. Hubble is in a low Earth orbit, therefore it's actually possible, 
least whilst we still had the space shuttle to go there and repair stuff if need be. The James Webb telescope will be on the other side of the moon. You can't just go there and actually fix things if stuff goes wrong, so you need to do extra checking. And then, of course, as I said, there are the, the, the satellite missions, uh, things like Rosetta, things like uh, uh, the, the New Horizons missions. Very little of it is actually man-based because it's really expensive to send a man up or a person up mm -hmm. uh, in, into space uh, because you need to feed them and so on and satellites don't require any food. The first review we wanted to talk about, which is titled Astrochemistry of Dust, Ice and Gas, discusses how we can use theoretical chemistry to calculate collisional rate coefficients and that these are used to determine molecular excitations. So how will these calculations further our understanding of chemistry in space? Right, so the first thing that you need to recognize is that when you do measurements, whether they be astronomical measurements or measurements in the lab, you're always going to be, uh, there are two things which really hit you at that point. One is that you're always going to be measuring distance differences between energy levels, so you're always measuring a difference. And therefore, you don't necessarily know what it is you're measuring. You just know there's a certain line at a certain point. You don't know what it belongs to. The number of candidates can be absolutely enormous. So astronomy often deals with you know, thousands of lines in a single observation and trying to figure out what belongs to what actually is really problematic. So they call these lines sometimes weeds because that's what they look like. Some of them are useful. Some of them are actually lines of stuff that people have already measured before. Similarly, the experiments that people do are very, very complicated as well. It's really hard to do those experiments correctly. Moreover, both in the experiments and in astronomy, you can only find certain things. So you can only get to molecules which are stable enough to exist for a long enough time that you have the density that you can actually measure them in space, for example. So intermediates are really difficult to achieve. That's where calculations come in, because we can calculate anything in principle. What you then need to do is you need to first develop a potential energy surface for whatever it is that you want to measure, be that vibrational spectra or, or, or rates. Uh, so that's solving the first step of the Schrodinger equation. And then you solve the second step to get either cross-sections, and from the cross-sections you get rates. If you use the quantum Boltzmann operator, you can calculate rates directly, or you can calculate things like vibrational spectra, like, for instance, in the XML program down at, at that UCL. And so what that then gives you, it actually gives you that extra information that is, that is needed to explain the observations, why you end up with the stuff that you're actually measuring. And that's what I like about it. It gives you that sort of, as it says in one of the, the reviews, astrochemistry is a blending of astronomy and chemistry in which each area enriches the other in a mutually stimulating interaction. And that's what I find so interesting because you know there are certain observations. How do you get to that point? What can you do? And it's really very fundamental because these are relatively straightforward reactions, simple reactions. What can you do? And so when we started this work, it was in working on H2 formation, which actually is much more complicated than what you might think. Just two hydrogen atoms coming together actually won't give you anything because the densities are so low, two-body reactions only, and therefore two hydrogen atoms smashing together will just fly apart again. In principle, you could get radiative stabilization, but it doesn't have a dipole moment. Uh, you don't get a photon coming out, and therefore it actually is not radiatively stabilized. As a complete and utter aside, you can see quadrupolar emission from excited H2. So you can see the S-band of H2 in certain objects in space. Recently, we've gone for slightly bigger things. And so we started looking at COMS, which we'll come to slightly later. Those are complex organic molecules. And there, the interest is as much in trying to look at the boundaries 
of what you can do. What can you calculate in a finite time, which still tells you something about the really complex environment you find, uh, find in space? So this review also highlights a case of theory and experiment not agreeing, and this particular example with regards to calculations of rate coefficients of molecular ion destruction. So in this situation, experimentalists will have carried out work in the lab to determine whether a certain reaction or process could feasibly happen in space. But when experiment and theory don't agree, this is a fairly unusual situation in which we can't easily go into space and do another experiment to determine who is right. So what would be the next step in deciding what the correct answer is? Well, of course, as a card-carrying theoretician, I would say, of course, it's experiment, which is wrong, but it doesn't, <laughs> quite, it doesn't quite work that way. So when you compare to experiment, and it goes for anything, that goes outside this field as well, the first thing that you need to ask yourself, are the experiments and the calculations trying to model exactly the same thing? If they're not modeling the same thing, you should get different answers. If you get the same answers, in that case, you, you're doing something wrong. And so if you come to the conclusion that they model the same thing but get a different answer, then there are a number of different avenues. One is to do better experiments. These experiments will, have, will be prone to experimental error and therefore do more accurate experiments or do the experiment in a different way, approaching the problem in a different direction, might give you a different answer. Or it might give you exactly the same answer, in which case you start to look at the theory. As I already said, one of the things that you need to do in order to do these calculations is develop a potential energy surface. You can definitely in, in improve that surface, and perhaps you need to include terms that you wouldn't normally include. From other things in literature, if you look, for instance, at the, the vibrational spectrum of water on the sun in the sunspots, so they've detected water on the sun in a sunspot at 3,000 Kelvin. Water is so, hi so highly vibrationally excited that a lot of unusual effects are starting to play a role. But also, the, uh, the calculations show that you need a really high-level potential energy surface in order to get the right results. And then finally, the third leg of what you can do is you actually can do observations. So the observations might not tell you exactly which pathway works, what the branching ratio should be, but it allows you from the predictions of the experiment or the theory, it would allow you to predict what sort of levels of certain molecules or certain radicals you'd expect to find in certain regions of space. You can do the observations and then see what sort of boundary conditions are, what sort of ranges are that these, these branching ratios in this particular case should be in. Right, so moving on to um, the second paper, which is on more comp on complex organic interstellar molecules. Firstly, how do we get elements heavier than hydrogen in space? Right, first of all, in the Big Bang, you form hydrogen, deuterium, and helium, and that's it. You can't make any more because you can't get beyond a mass 5 or mass 8 on the uh, periodic table. The universe is 90% hydrogen. 10% helium by number, or 75-25% by mass, and everything else are trace elements. So you and I both exist <laughs> only of largely of, of trace elements. Because you can't get beyond 5 and 8, it was a long-standing problem how you would get beyond those masses to get to things like carbon, oxygen, and so on. And actually, it was Fred Hoyle in... Um, I can't remember the exact date, the 1950s, 1960s, who realized at some point, and he calculated this beforehand, that if you brought three helium atoms together, that you would just hit a resonance in the carbon atom, which would just be sufficient, which could stabilize itself and give you 12 carbon. This is called the triple alpha process, and that's essentially what's happening inside our sun, for example. Once you have carbon, I wouldn't say it becomes easy, but it's a lot more straightforward to see. So you get 12 carbon, 16 oxygen, 20 neon, 24 magnesium as a consequence. And that's actually, if you look at the abundances of the elements, you see this odd even variation. So 
carbon is much more common than nitrogen universally. Oxygen than fluorine is relatively uncommon. Neon is common again, sodium, etc. And it even sets itself through in the rare earths. If you do that properly uh, in the rare earths, you see the same odd even variation. Alpha capture gets you all the way to iron. Not just that way, but also when you add two carbon atoms together, you can make 24 magnesium as well. And you can start to get silicon burning, etc., etc., all the way to, to iron. Beyond iron, it becomes a lot more complicated in that you can't just do that in a star, not even a very large star. You need to have a nova or a supernova to create those elements which are heavier. And so that's through neutron capture, and you can get all the way up to new uranium in that particular case. Right, and once we have these elements, how do they combine to make more complex molecules, for example, hydrogen and oxygen, to make water? That depends, again, on what sort of medium you're talking about. If you're talking about things in the gas phase, then basically all everything is possible. The densities, as I've already said, are very, very low, so you're talking about two-body reactions. In the case of oxygen plus hydrogen, in principle, they could combine together, emit a photon and get radiative stabilization of hydrogen that way. It's much easier if you have a, an atom plus a molecule, in which case there's a third body that can take away the excess energy. In general, reactions involving new, uh, charged species are easier because they have a long range attractive force, but also uh, a molecule um, radical reactions are possible as well. In the case of water, which is actually quite a special case, we have not detected enough water in the gas phase that the gas phase route for formation of water is the only way of, of forming water. We know there's a lot of water frozen out on dust grains, so the expectation is that there is a, uh, an extensive surface formation route for water as well, in which case you absorb oxygen, O2, or oxygen atoms on a surface, and you get subsequent hydrogenation in that case. And actually, that's something that is actually quite common. So if you have, for instance, CO, carbon monoxide, which is an important sink for uh, carbon or oxygen, on the surface you can form with double hydrogenation, you can form formaldehyde. And once you have formaldehyde, you can form methanol. And then at that point, you get a massive branching of things and you can actually form much more complicated molecules. Okay, so I assume this is how more complex molecules are made, like organic molecules. Taking this a step further and creating even bigger molecules or more complicated bonding systems, such as acetamide, which is known to be present in space, how would this happen? Right, okay, so in order to make really complicated molecules, you have to take one thing in mind. If you want to make something really complicated, it's built up of smaller things, which are much more straightforward, which is then made up of even smaller things. So realistically, what you have is a massive, what they call a reaction network, starting from oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, which builds its way up all the way to you get to, for example, acetamide. What you could envisage in this case is a situation where, for instance, you have CO on a, in an ice, you have some uh, methane there, sorry, not some ammonia there, maybe some methane as well, but uh, ammonia there, an ice which is mixed together, and those ices tend to get processed. Processing is a, is a technical term where essentially the ice is bombarded by things like UV, UV radiation, so lime and alpha radiation, for example, fast-moving electrons, uh, cosmic rays, uh, which can be the fast-moving electrons or can be fast-moving protons, and therefore um, you're forming radicals. You're forming secondary electrons first, then you might be forming radicals, so you might be forming things like NH2 radical, uh, if you have formaldehyde there, you might be forming HCO radical. Those radicals, because the temperatures are so low, tend to be quite stationary. They can actually survive for quite a long time. 
then at some point, what the thinking is at the moment, that at some point as the star starts to ignite, the temperature goes up slightly, those ices will melt, and therefore things will start to move towards each other, start to diffuse, and you can get reaction to, for instance, to form acetamide or, or formaldehyde or, or formamide. So what problems are associated with finding very complex molecules? Well, it's, it's to some extent with, with any kind of, of molecules of that, compl- uh, that sort of complexity, they are complex molecules. You get lots of lines, there are lots of vibrational transitions, lots of rotational transitions that you need to worry about. So trying to actually separate out all the lines that you've measured uh, becomes a problem. You also get, because you're measuring differences between energy levels, you might get that, the fact that things overlap and therefore uh, they sometimes call that blending or, or, or anything like that. So if things overlap, then you don't know anymore whether what you're looking at is two lines, one line, composite of various lines and so on. In this particular case, these molecules, because they're so complex, they tend to form in the middle of these, these large objects, these molecular clouds or star for, in, in star-forming regions. And so these regions are difficult, there's lots of extinction, you have to look deep into the cloud in order to see them, but also these kind of things do not form, there are not a lot of that form, and so therefore the densities will be low, so your signal-to-noise ratio will be very, very bad, and that makes it really difficult to do specific, accurate assignments of these molecules, and you will, what you will find in literature that sometimes they will have discovered uh, I think glycine was a particular example. They would have seen glycine. They said, okay, we've seen glycine. And then they had to retract it because when they reanalyzed the data, they found actually the assignment wasn't as accurate as they thought it was. So this review lists over 50 complex organic molecules known to be present in space, which have a combination of biologically important atoms, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, and sulfur. The first four of those are constituents of amino acids and subsequently proteins. So amino acids are commonly referred to as the building blocks of life. Is there a significance to these molecules being present in space? That is a really good question. And uh, as as the Americans would say, that's the $64,000 question. (laughs) So just to, again, just to make sure that the background is clear to to the the listeners, these, these kind of molecules that you would find here are things like glycoaldehyde, which is a very simple sugar, Ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze, uh, methyl formate, which is a very simple ester. We've already mentioned uh, formamide, uh, which might give you the first peptide bond. I just mentioned glycine and its detection. Actually, recently they have detected glycine on Comet 67P. So the Rosetta mission found glycine in the coma of this particular uh, comet. So glycine definitely does exist out there. So what you then need to recognize is how the Earth formed. So the Earth formed four and a half billion years ago, give or take. What we do know is that the first, the Earth first solidified about 4.2 billion years ago. Life first formed about 3.8 billion years ago. We know those dates are they're, they're reasonably fixed. We also know that in that period of 400 million years, there was still quite a heavy bombardment of meteorites and all sorts of uh, material coming out of space. So life formed very, very quickly on Earth. And it is perfectly conceivable that these molecules actually played a role there as life developed here by seeding, by providing the building blocks in a, in, in a way which you know, held life along, so to say. Well, that's complete conjecture. Of course, we can't go back. And that's just, to some extent, purely my opinion on this. So for you, what is the most exciting development in the area since you've been working in it? So in terms of 
the data coming out, one of the most exciting things is, for instance, uh, the development of Alma. Alma gives a lot of really good data that my experimental colleagues can, can work with. It also gives us much better data to do, to do calculations on. At the same time, in, in sort of experimental, uh, experimental, there's some, some really nice experiments that people have done. Uh, in particular, there was this long-standing problem of so-called in- diffuse interstellar bands. Well, they were detected in the 1920s. And as somebody once said, many a career was founded on the diffused interstellar bands. So only a few years ago, researchers at the University of Basel under the, um, in the group of uh, J.P. Meyer actually assigned one of these bands conclusively to be C60+, the buckyball that Harry Croteau discovered while he was at Sussex. While he was investigating these, these diffuse interstellar bands, he, was, he wanted to find potential carriers for these diffuse interstellar bands, discovered buckyballs instead serendipitously, and of course now it's nice that the circle has, has essentially completed itself and you come back to the same, to the same point. And looking forward, what do you think the next big development in the field will likely be? On the astronomy side, I think James Webb Space Telescope is going to really make a difference because higher and higher resolution, one of my colleagues called is, calls it the, the advent of high-resolution spectroscopy, or high-resolution astronomy, sorry. That's really where you start to go. The more accurate the data is, the easier it is to, to define the boundary conditions of, of what you should find in, in calculation. If you go outside that, then that means that you have to uh, do better calculations. The other thing which I've already mentioned is that in order to do any of the kind of calculations that we want to do, particularly if you want to calculate cross-sections or rates or, or spectrum, you need to have accurate potential energy surfaces. Making a potential energy surface is hard work. Uh, it's a bit of a black box, a bit of a dark art, the fitting of surfaces. So I'm really looking forward at the sort of the advent of artificial intelligence technique we allow, which will allow us to generate these, these potential energy surfaces much more smoothly, much more and much more reproducibly. I think that's all we've got time for today. Thank you again, Anthony, for joining us on the podcast. Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. again to Professor Anthony Meyer for joining us on the podcast and as always if you have any comments questions or are working in the field as well be sure to let us know and in particular this time we'd love to see some pictures of space if you work in the area or are an enthusiast on the topic and want to share some of your favorites then please do you can do that through our social media pages in Twitter and Instagram at TheoryPod or on our Theoretically Speaking Facebook page. And don't forget to give us a follow or like whilst you are there. Also, you can read much more about space developments and specifically those we have mentioned earlier on the NASA and European Space Agency websites. There are also so many stunning pictures to accompany the articles, so it's well worth taking a look. Finally, we'd like to thank TMCS and the EPSRC for funding this podcast and all of you for listening. Do join us next time for another interesting scientific discussion. You've been listening to... Theoretically Speaking!